Our guest says the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs has one of the most important missions in the country, to care for people who risk their lives for us. As we approach Veterans Day, it's important to talk about that mission and how the VA is trying to reach its goal for America's 9 million enrolled veterans. We released a systematic review earlier this year, which is a summary of over 40 studies that compared VA to non-VA care. And the good news from that is that we perform just as good, most often better, as the civilian sector in surgical and non-surgical care. Dr. Sharif El-Nahal is the Undersecretary for Health in the Department of Veteran Affairs, where he is responsible for the country's largest integrated healthcare system. Our hypothesis when we started uh, the innovation ecosystem was that these are the folks who know what the solution should be. A lot of our employees are veterans themselves, if not they have a veteran in their lives, and so they often go above and beyond their job descriptions to try new things, to uh, invent new technologies even, to meet veteran needs, and now we have a way to lift up those things that are working and say, what should we do to scale that across the system? This is Conversations on Healthcare. Welcome, Dr. El Nahal, to Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks so much for having me. You know, you direct the healthcare system with an enormous annual budget, approximately $102 billion. If you could tell our listeners what are the metrics and data telling you right now about how that care is being delivered and what do the outcomes look like? Well, I really appreciate having the opportunity to serve veterans across the country. You mentioned 9 million enrolled veterans, over 6 million of them regularly get most of their care within VA. And the good news is we're held to the same standard as private sector and civilian sector institutions on quality and patient safety ratings. And so 67% of VA medical centers, as just one example, get either four or five stars out of five in the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services overall hospital quality rating. They also have a star rating that they release on patient experience and 72% of our medical centers get either four or five stars on that rating alone. And so that compares to less than half of civilian sector hospitals in both of those metrics. On top of that, we released a systematic review earlier this year, which is a summary of over 40 studies that compared VA to non-VA care. And the good news from that is that we perform just as good, most often better, as the civilian sector in surgical and non-surgical care. And so we have the same benchmarks that the rest of the American healthcare system uses to assess quality of care. And we're so proud to know that our medical centers stack up and do even better uh, than the civilian sector. Well, that is very impressive, and thank you uh, for sharing those results with us. And you have uh, also just announced that the VA and 13 community health systems have pledged to share data to improve veteran health care. Tell us how this will work, uh, what brought about the initiative, and what do you think uh, this will do in terms of being a model for the rest of the healthcare sector? Well, a lot of folks don't necessarily know that about a third of the care that we offer to veterans, we actually purchase from private sector and civilian sector partners, our academic affiliate institutions, um, you know, higher volume institutions that see a lot of our veterans and take care of a good scope of our veterans care. And so because of that, the need to coordinate that care and share information 
seamlessly back and forth is just absolutely critical. Right now, we still use some of the archaic technologies like e-fax and snail mail. We really need to move into the next generation of technology here. And these 13 health systems are going to tell us and work with us on building that seamless exchange of information. On top of that, we want to build a system that they can query to understand whether they're in front of a veteran or not, whether their clinicians are caring for one of the veterans in our system. And for those veterans to get information about our programming, programming about the PACT Act, uh, the new law that the president signed last year that allows us to be there for veterans exposed to toxic substances, our programming on suicide prevention, and so much more. So I want to thank those 13 health systems for working with us on this pledge. Can you share a few of the, uh, what are those community health systems? Maybe a few to give our listeners a sense around the country of where those systems are? Absolutely. We have uh, Mass General Brigham uh, up in Boston, Kaiser Permanente in California, Sanford Health uh, that serves the Dakotas and a lot of the rural areas in the middle of the country. And uh, Inova Health right, right here in the D.C. area, a number of really important health systems, very large footprints uh, and very advanced in the technology that they do. And so those are just some examples. That's a great partnership you have. You know, the country is facing uh, issues around COVID uh, as a wave uh, sweeps across the country and around the globe. Uh, and the VA is reporting that active COVID cases among patients have been up more than 200 percent in the last two months. Uh, roughly 4,000 cases in the system right now. Um, of course, that's still below uh, the numbers you saw during the pandemic. But I wonder if you could update us uh, on efforts to encourage vets to get vaccinated for COVID and for the flu as well. Yeah, so uh, I want veterans to know that we are never complacent when it comes to tracking the status of where we are with COVID-19, but also the flu and so many other transmissible uh, infectious diseases. We have systems that we review uh, literally every day to make sure we're not seeing significant trends upward. And if we are, what we need to do uh, to prevent further spread. You mentioned vaccination. It is one of the most important things veterans, family members, caregivers can do to protect themselves against severe outcomes from this disease. And in fact, there's really strong data that shows that if you're vaccinated and up to date with your vaccination, remember that the latest booster was just released a few weeks ago for use across the country. And if you get infected and start on a regimen of Paxlovid, you're very, very unlikely to pass away or have a severe outcome from COVID-19. So thankfully, we have a lot more tools now, uh, and we want veterans to know we offer all of them to you. Well, Dr. Al-Nahal, a very uh, sobering uh, statistic to point out is that we're losing 17 vets a day on average to suicide, according to the latest data. Uh, and you've announced that you're focused on improving suicide prevention initiatives. We would welcome uh, you commenting on some of those initiatives, uh, both traditional ones that you may be expanding. Also, are there any uh, novel or innovative approaches that you're taking? I understand that you've uh, incorporated some complementary and alternative strategies into your program. Share, share with us the range of those initiatives. Hey, thank you for asking about that because it is my most important clinical priority for veteran care and also our most important public health priority to uh, really reduce veteran suicides to the lowest extent possible. Even one veteran dying by suicide 
is one too many. Every single veteran suicide is a tragedy that we have to learn from. And we are doing that to the extent possible every single day. And we really have three prongs to our approach in reducing veteran suicide. The first is to make sure that crisis care is available to any veteran who needs it, no matter where they are. And our veterans crisis line is on first with that. It's a much easier number to remember now. It's 988, and if you're a veteran, press one. You get connected to a professional on the other end who can help you through that crisis and help you understand that there's a reason to keep going and a reason to live and then connect you to VA care uh, that's needed after that. On top of that, our emergency rooms, our clinicians and medical centers across the country are there for you. It is okay not to be okay. There's a stigma around mental health. For veterans, it could be life-saving to encourage a battle buddy or if you're a caregiver loved one to encourage that veteran to seek healthcare. We also have really important community coalitions that we are funding across the country. We've now given out more than $50 million in grants this year alone to community organizations that help fortify a veteran's social and support network to be protective against the risk of suicide. And finally, and very importantly, the work we are doing on gun safety and lethal means safety, we hand out gun locks with every opportunity we have. This isn't us wading into any type of political debate on guns. It's just allowing for a few extra seconds to minutes to help save that veteran's life. If they need to reach out for uh, something to unlock their gun or if their gun lock is with their caregiver or loved one, that could be a life-saving situation where they would not use that firearm to die by suicide. And so between all of those initiatives, we're working as hard as we can on this very important public health priority. Well, those initiatives are, are really so important. Congratulations to you and the, and the VA for that work and certainly uh, the public service announcement around 988, so important in addressing the issues of stigma. You know, uh, Undersecretary, you mentioned earlier about the PAC Act, uh, Veterans are still being urged to apply for the promise to address uh, comprehensive toxins. As you mentioned, uh, PAC Act signed uh, by the president last year. Um, I'm wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about it. This, this is called perhaps the largest healthcare uh, and benefit expansion in the VA history. I'm not sure it's on everybody's radar. It should be such an important program. Uh, should vets apply even if they don't have any symptoms? Well, I'll tell you, there are so many more doors to get into the VA than we had before because of this law. The bulk of the law addresses both Vietnam veterans and Persian Gulf and post 9-11 conflict era veterans vis-a-vis the latter's exposure to burn pits in Central Command, that's Iraq, Afghanistan, and many other surrounding countries. And for Vietnam vets, of course, it's Agent Orange. The law expands the number of deployment areas that make someone eligible to be considered presumptively exposed to Agent Orange and then tracks back on conditions that they may have and says this could be related to your Agent Orange exposure, meaning the burden of proof is no longer on veterans to say that their condition is connected to their service as long as they were deployed to particular locations at particular times. However, even if you don't have a chronic condition or symptoms, you can still enroll directly into VA healthcare with various different pathways under the law. And so I encourage everybody to go to va.gov PACT and click apply for healthcare. You can see all of the new opportunities to get VA healthcare. If you are a veteran, it is not necessarily required that you've been exposed to these substances to benefit as a result of the PACT Act. 
Well, maybe uh, along those same lines, you've been speaking out about how the VA and the Cancer Moonshot initiatives are aligned to support the PACT Act and veterans with environmental exposures. How, how do these interact? Well, Cancer Moonshot is a really key part of what we're doing. It's the president's agenda on reducing cancer mortality by 50% uh, in the next few decades. And that's a pretty significant goal, but it's a goal that we think is achievable. And VA can really contribute to that goal. The first thing is that we have researchers who are doing incredibly innovative and important work, expanding all clinicians' pie of knowledge across the country. We're affiliated with almost every single academic medical center and medical school in the country with the faculty needed to find more answers and develop new therapies. On top of that, the PACT Act, especially folks who are exposed to burn pits in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Central Command, adds many, many cancer conditions as related to that burn pit exposure. So if you were deployed to anywhere in Central Command, either in the first Gulf War or in the post-9-11 conflicts, and you have one of the many cancers added as presumptive conditions, we will assume that you've been exposed to burn pits and therefore that your cancer is related to your service if you apply for VA benefits. And so I uh, really want folks to know that part of the cancer moonshot is allowing so many more of these vets with cancer to get VA benefits and health care. Well, you know, um, that, that again is a, another uh, important a resource uh, for veterans, and uh, we're glad you're leading the way on that. You know, you're facing a lot of challenges. Uh, another one of them is the federal government shutdown in less than a month, and we realize that uh, you and your colleagues must be ready for whatever happens. Um, I'm wondering, for a veteran who's listening, uh, what should they know about uh, what will and will not be affected uh, if there is a shutdown, we hope there's no shutdown, but hope for the best and fear the worst. I know. So you're you're always planning. Uh, uh, what can you tell a, a veteran? Well, thankfully, Congress anticipated that the sh a shutdown, if we were beholden to it in the healthcare system, could be really crippling to VA healthcare. And because of that, we have something called an advanced appropriation. Essentially, that is money that carries over into the next fiscal year that allows our hospitals, clinics, and healthcare delivery mission to continue even if there is a shutdown. And so the basics of your healthcare as a veteran will not be disrupted if a shutdown ends up happening. So that's the first and most important uh, good news there. However, there are other components of the VA that might be affected. Certain elements of our Office of Information and Technology cannot start new deployments of technology that can be particularly helpful for veteran care. We also have other components related to outreach and making veterans aware of all of the care options that they have in the VA. A lot of that outreach has to stop during a shutdown. And all of that indirectly leads to more and better health care when we're able to do it. So if we're not able to do it, we get concerned. And so especially on an extended shutdown, we might start to see some of those impacts on veterans. And so I really do hope that Congress passes a budget. Uh, the president and uh, Congress are really trying to work uh, on this. And when a speaker is elected, hopefully uh, we'll be able to get those conversations started again. Dr. Alnahov, I know another area that you're highlighting is that the VA has reduced the number of veterans who are prescribed opioids by 67 percent since 2012, which we look back at as kind of the height of the opioid prescribing crisis. 
Uh, yet more than a third of veterans who use the VA uh, say they live with chronic pain. How have you accomplished the reduction while also adhering to the very important principle of treating the pain? Yeah, we're really proud of our opioid safety initiative. We know that a large number of veterans and people more generally in the United States start their journey into opioid addiction with a prescription, with a bottle they get of these opioids for their care conditions. And if that initial prescription ends up being longer uh, than a patient or a veteran needs or higher doses than what a patient or a veteran needs, that could lead to dependence, which could end up leading to addiction. And so stopping prescriptions when they are not needed for things like chronic pain, or at least limiting their duration, is a major way to prevent addiction to the extent that we can across the country. A really important part of our opioid safety initiative, though, isn't just saying, hey, we're not going to give you opioids. It's offering all of the other alternatives that can be and often are effective in relieving pain. So there is procedural care you can get to relieve pain from specialists. There is what we call our whole health portfolio, so acupuncture and other methods that have worked for veterans uh, significantly in the past. And there are other medications that you can try first before resorting to opioids that are not addictive and can relieve your pain. And so essentially we exhaust all options before having to move to opioids in the first instance. And when we do have to use opioids, tapering them off and limiting their duration to the extent possible. You know, Under Secretary Morgan and I have been watching for years the innovations that come out of the Veterans Administration. And you're the co-founder of the Veterans Health Administration Innovation Ecosystem, uh, which is a program designed to foster the spread of innovation and best practices to improve uh, veterans' care. I'm wondering if you might share with us some of the latest advancements uh, that have been promulgated from uh, this important work. Yeah, I think the innovation ecosystem is one of the major ways that we lift up the front line, uh, the clinicians, the doctors, the nurses, the pharmacists, the social workers, everybody who is right there in front of the veteran serving them. They often know what the most important pain points for veterans are as they navigate through the VA. And our hypothesis when we started uh, the innovation ecosystem was that these are the folks who know what the solution should be. A lot of our employees are veterans themselves, if not they have a veteran in their lives. And so they often go above and beyond their job descriptions to try new things, to uh, invent new technologies even, to meet veteran needs. And now we have a way to lift up those things that are working and say, what should we do to scale that across the system? And so that's what the innovation ecosystem does. Uh, we've done a lot with it even since the pandemic. So uh, the 3D printing outfit uh, that our innovation ecosystem has has allowed for many more masks to be distributed across the country when they were in shortage. On top of that, we've invented novel medical devices like new types of hearing aids that more effectively fit uh, into someone's anatomy after uh, using imaging and other methods to determine what that hearing aid and assistive device should look like. And every year, new innovations and new inventions are coming through. But VA healthcare providers, I understand, may not recommend marijuana or assist veterans in obtaining it because uh, it's a Schedule One controlled substance. And yet the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has formally recommended uh, that cannabis be moved from Schedule One to a lower level. What do you make of all these efforts? And do you anticipate that the uh, VA will be changing if those things happen? 
Well, you mentioned uh, the main barrier, which is that it is currently federally illegal and currently scheduled as a Schedule One substance, meaning that especially as a federal agency, uh, we unfortunately at this time are receiving guidance that we cannot uh, recommend the therapy from our clinicians or engage in state programs. However, you also mentioned that the president has asked uh, the DEA to look into rescheduling uh, cannabis for uh, possible use medically. Uh, there's also the possibility that research could be done increasingly if that happens in our system. And we recently reached out to both the Attorney General uh, and to the uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, indicating that we are ready and able to conduct clinical trials in this if and when they make their regulatory decisions. And so we know that certain conditions have a lot of promise, things like chronic pain uh, and even mental health conditions like PTSD uh, could possibly benefit from cannabis therapy, but we don't know the answer to that unless we do rigorous clinical trials and build the evidence behind it. And the VA would be willing to engage in that should those other agencies make those moves. Well, doing clinical trials is so important. We learn so much from them, and uh, that will be a very important. I want to keep you back in New Jersey, uh, where you led the university hospital in, in New Jersey. And you started a program, a very exciting one, that deploys trusted chaplains as community health workers. You know, we just had uh, CDC uh, Director Cohen on, who talked about the importance of uh, someone you trust uh, in terms of decision-making. I wonder if you could just tell us more about this program. It sounds so interesting. Yeah, well, we knew that uh, chaplains in Newark were uh, among the most trusted people, uh, leaders of faith in all denominations and all faiths, uh, really were able to congregate communities. It was often one of the most effective ways for us to uh, spread the word on healthy habits, uh, access to healthcare within our institution. And the good news is that uh, chaplains exist all over the country within the VA as well. In fact, our uh, National Chaplaincy Service Director reports directly to me, and uh, she's definitely building an infrastructure and trying to support our chaplains across the country. Uh, that program at University Hospital combined a role with existing chaplains and had them become community health workers, which requires a certain degree of training and literacy and health issues. And that was a really effective combination there. And so we're always looking at similar ways that our chaplains within the VA can become more a more and more important part of a veteran's care, knowing that a lot of veterans' faith is so important to them. That could be a real effective avenue to increase their healthy habits and improve their health. And a very creative approach. Congratulations on, on that one. You know, a, a former undersecretary of the Navy once said that she gets upset when everything focuses on the negative about military service. And, and others have expressed that sentiment as well. They think it's wrong to assume every veteran is, is quote, broken. Uh, are they right? Do you think that we as a country are overlooking the positive aspects of service, even the positive physical and mental parts of it? Well, what I'll tell you is that uh, from the veteran standpoint, uh, this narrative of the broken veteran is just so wrong on so many levels. Uh, the fact that veterans serve our country, uh, it's a selfless act in and of itself to put yourself in the voluntary service to defend our country. Uh, on top of that, when they get through that service and they come home with trauma and they come home with conditions, 
uh, they have to go through a really tough process in getting over those issues. And that ultimately makes them stronger. That does not make them weaker. And so I reject the narrative of the broken veteran wholeheartedly, knowing that veterans end, out, end up being stronger than the rest of us because of their journey overcoming their trauma. And for the VA and for me to have at least a small part in helping veterans do that across the country is my life's professional honor. But no, our veterans are not broken. When they need our assistance, it's actually our obligation because this is the care that they earned and deserve because they sacrificed so much for us. And they end up coming out of that much stronger individuals. Well, we like that positive attitude. Under Secretary Ellen Hall, you have such a remarkable uh, personal story uh, and career. Uh, I'm wondering how, how did you get interested in medicine? And then how did you specifically uh, uh, get interested in the, the work at the Veterans Affairs? So uh, my story of getting into medicine actually was inspired by, uh, you know, one uh, kid that I mentored in Baltimore uh, who had type 1 diabetes. I grew up with type 1 diabetes myself and volunteered to teach a class on self-management at a local federally qualified health center in Baltimore. Um, and he worked with me over a matter of months. We really improved his blood sugars. And then I got a really tragic call from his mother that he actually passed away. And I asked her, oh, my God, was it from his diabetes? And her answer was, no, he had actually, unfortunately, joined a gang and ended up being murdered. Mm -hmm. And so it really taught me, uh, you know, in a very, very emotional way that the social circumstances around folks can be the thing that ultimately has much more bearing on their health and their outcomes uh, than the day-to-day and -day managing their health care within our clinic walls. And so not only inspired me to go into healthcare and become a physician, but also to look at other ways that I could serve in a broader way. And so to do this now for veterans uh, is just my life's professional honor. Uh, and my journey into uh, management and policy stemmed from that direct experience. What levers can we pull as a society within government, but also even at the institutional level uh, to make life better for people? And to be able to do that for veterans is just an incredibly important opportunity to me. You mentioned federally qualified health centers. One of the many hats we wear is a federally qualified health center. And one of the most important uh, days of the year for so many of our staff are our work with stand down, uh, yeah. which is so important here uh, in our state, but I know other uh, federally qualified health centers uh, are privileged uh, to serve uh, our veterans. So thank you for uh, the work that you've done and also uh, that work uh, for that young child. Mm -hmm. Thank you so Dr. much. Ellen, Dr. Hall. I think we might have time for just one more question. So uh, if I if I may, I have always been moved by the, uh, I think it's part of statute, that part of the mission of Veteran Affairs is to care for, to provide the health care for those uh, who have served the country and to train them and to also train the future health care providers for the people of the country. You have such a, a strong reputation as a health profession health profession training uh, system within the United States. Anything new you'd like to share with us about innovation on that front, changes in your training programs or your strategy for addressing all the workforce shortages that we hear about from primary care to nursing to specialties? We'd love to give you a moment to comment on that. You're right to highlight our uh, training mission as among our most important 
uh, healthcare missions that we have. I actually became exposed to VA as a physician because my first rotation on the wards was actually at a VA medical center. And that's actually when I met a veteran who traveled more than an hour with crushing chest pain just to get there. And we all knew he was having a heart attack, as did he when he arrived, because it was his second one. Um, and so, of course, when we asked him after he was stabilized why he drove that far uh, to get to the West Roxbury VA, he told us that he would not trust any other institution with his health care. And so that was such a meaningful moment for me. It allowed me to understand how important the institution of the VA was. And it turns out that 70% of physicians have at least part of their training at one point in a VA. Right. So many more nurses do. So on the front of innovation, we've expanded many more slots in nursing residencies to get and foster that same level of talent on that side. And it's just so critical to our overall staffing and workforce mission to be a preeminent training institution. Undersecretary Ellen Hall, thank you for joining us today. And thanks to our audience. Be sure to go online to chcradio.com to sign up for email updates. You can also share your thoughts and comments about this program. Undersecretary, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own, and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.